Y'all want to open up to James chapter 2? <clears throat> and like he was talking about, James is all about the effects of saving faith. That's the, the fruit piece here. Like if you are a follower of Christ, this is the fruit that being a follower of Christ should produce in your life. And James is very much anti. James is very anti this idea that you can just have intellectual knowledge of God. James is very much teaching us that a true salvation, a true faith in Christ, is going to produce these things in your life. And when you think about Christian obedience, I think so often the trap we fall into is we think about just like our individual behavior. Like, how do I act? Do I lie? Do I say bad words? Do I um, abuse drugs? Do I struggle with um, temptation or lust? Like, we think from a very individual perspective, and that is absolutely a part of a Christian life and absolutely a part of James, but just as importantly, James, as the New Testament always does, also focuses very much on how we interact with one another and express obedience towards Christ, but with one another, love one another, serve one another. And just like you always see in the New Testament, the Christian life is lived out in the context of the church. So important, the context of the church and how we treat, encourage one another, always an important thing. And that is what we'll be focusing on in James chapter 2 this morning. Now think about the world, school, wherever, like social interaction, whatever social circles you run in. How do people normally choose their friends? What are some ways that people choose their friends? You get to know them first, and what are you looking for when you get to know them? A friendly personality. Friendly personality, that's a good one. What are some other ways? People like you. People like you, but why do people like each other? What are some of the things that people center themselves around? Similar interests. Common interests, that's a good one, right? Like, hey, I'm into sports, you're into sports. Let's be friends, especially if it's the same sport. So that definitely, common interest is one way that people will build bonds and build relationships. What are some other ways in the world that people build bonds and relationships? There's plenty of other ways, right? Like, you got friends. Why is somebody your friend? How about, okay, when I was a kid, I wanted to be your friend if you had a video game system. Like, you've got, an intent, you've got the new PlayStation? Ooh, we got to be friends. we got to come over. I met this guy in the eighth grade, didn't like him at all. And didn't think I was going to like him. And then one day he's like, hey, you want to come over to my house and eat ice cream and play PlayStation? We were instantly friends. I'm friends with him till this very day. Ice cream and PlayStation. Sports? What are some other reasons people form bonds in this world and friendships in this world? Swimming pool? Like, hey, you got a pool? We're friends now. I'm coming over to your house all the time. 
I like the Macolas. I've always liked them. I like them like ten times more now that they got a pool in their backyard. It's awesome, right? Ian. There you go. That's actually very true, right? These days people form a lot of bonds around what do they hate? And what do they dislike? Oh, you hate those people? You hate that thing? Well, me too. We're friends now. Money's a big one, right? Authority. Like, when you have money, a lot of money, you think it's hard to find friends? When you're in a position of authority and power, do you think it's hard to find friends? No, even Proverbs tells you, like, hey, when you've got a lot of money, people want to be your friend. And they don't even care about you. They just like the money. Or when you're in a place of authority and power, people want to be close to you. See, the world acts this way, but should that be what it is like in the church? When it comes to how we love each other and treat each other in the church, should those worldly things be important? Or should we love each other, serve one another, and care for one another because of who Jesus Christ is and our common salvation in him? Obviously, it's lattice. And that's what James is talking about. In James chapter 2, the verses we'll look at this morning, James 2, 1 to 13, the main idea here, followers of Christ should not show partiality towards others based on superficial, worldly standards. It's important for us as a church, important for us as a youth group. There's all sorts of ways. Here's the reality is, and within the youth group, we should all love one another. And that doesn't mean we're not going to have people that we're closer to. We are. We're naturally just going to have some people we're closer to, some people that we're better friends with, and that's perfectly normal and fine. Jesus had apostles that he was closer to above the others, right? That's perfectly fine. But what it does mean is all of us should extend love towards each and every one of us, each other, because of who Jesus Christ is. And these superficial things that are fun and fine should take a very distant backseat to the priority of loving one another, caring for one another, because of who Jesus Christ Christ is. So we'll look at four different sections here. James starts in verse 1, giving us the lesson. The command against favoritism. James chapter 2, verse 1, James says, My brethren, do not hold your faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ with an attitude of personal favoritism. Who's James talking to here? He makes it clear. He is talking to Christians. He, he refers to them as brethren. He, he refers to them as those who have faith in the glorious Lord Jesus Christ. That faith is the very thing that makes you a Christian. So what James is teaching here, the commandment he's giving, applies to any of us who would claim to be followers of Jesus Christ. So we better pay really close attention, right? And what does it say to us who would claim to be followers of Jesus Christ? He says, do not hold our faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ with an attitude of personal favoritism. He's given a contrast here. A contrast between our faith, which is not in just some, like, land, un unspecial God, our faith in the glorious Lord Jesus Christ. 
He, he's giving us this contrast between the gloriousness of Christ and our faith in Him, the salvation we have in Him, and the darkness of the sin of personal favoritism. Now, what does he mean by personal favoritism? What exactly is the problem here that James is addressing? The, the word, the Greek word here, had the idea of like walking up to somebody and lifting up their face and looking real close at their face. You know how like when a little kid has something and you can't even, like something smeared all over their face? The mom can be like, what is this? What did you get into? Like grabs the face and starts looking at it. Like what? That's exactly what James is talking about. Like a superficial inspection and judgment of somebody. Judging somebody on material standards. Uh, Strong's Dictionary of Greek Terms explains it as a fault of character, a sin, in which you are called to make a judgment or appraisal of someone, and you do it on superficial, outward circumstances, not on intrinsic merits. It's superficial, materialistic favoritism. Now, is that how the world operates? Think about how the world judges things. Is it usually on very superficial standards? Yeah, absolutely. Like, what do you have to do? And we kind of covered this a little bit a minute ago, but just tell me, if you want the world to like you, the people around you to like you, think outside of church, what do you need to do? What are some ways that you can get the world to like you? Dress nice. People like clothes, right? Dress nice, be physically attractive. Everybody wants to be physically attractive. People are drawn to people who are physically attractive. What about as an adult? Like, if I wanted everybody in the world to really like me as an adult, what are some things I could do? Money. Like, make a lot of money, right? And pour myself into a career. Like, I can neglect my family. I can neglect the church. I can neglect even myself. But if I have a successful career, and make a lot of money, people are going to be like, wow, look at him. Look at what he did. Look at what he built. Have authority. Prestige. These are the things that the world values. Now, think through that list. Do any of those things carry any merit with God at all? No. Not at all. Not at all. In fact, think about what the Lord values. Think about Matthew, the Beatitudes, Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 to 11. Think about what Jesus says are the blessed qualities of a person. Humble in spirit, those who mourn, those who are gentle, those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, mercifulness, purity of heart, being a peacemaker, being persecuted, for the sake of Christ, those are the Beatitudes. Those are the things that Jesus, God in the flesh, says are the blessed characteristics of a person. Think about the world's list, and think about the list that Jesus gave you, and there's not one single thing in common there. It's remarkable. Literally not one thing. Immediately what comes to mind is 1 Samuel 16. Remember when uh, Samuel went to go choose a king, 
for uh, the nation of Israel. And he went um, and he called the sons of Jesse. And he went in thinking, you know, I'm going to choose somebody who looks like a king. Bring out the firstborn. Bring out the older brothers. Let's look for somebody who, who looks like a king, who physically fits the part. But 1 Samuel 16, 7, the Lord said to Samuel, do not look at the outer appearance or his height or his stature because I have rejected him. For God sees, not as man sees. For man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. And here, James is applying that exact same principle to how we should love each other, value each other within the church. We're not to evaluate people, value people within the church the way the world does. We care about the heart. So James is going to give us an illustration here. I think it's an illustration that we can all relate to. But here's what I would say the key thing is, especially in the youth group, you're all four, like none of you have anything, right? So this is an illustration James gives us based on money, but it could apply to anything. Like, think about, make it athletics, make it clothes, make it academic achievements, make it some other form of talent, like music capabilities, make it anything you want. Like, any, you can slide in whatever you're tempted to superficially judge people on and value people on, put that here in the illustration that James gives us. James is going to give us this illustration of favoritism. He says, For if a man comes into your assembly with a gold ring and dressed in fine clothes, and there also comes in a poor man in dirty clothes, and you pay special attention to the one who is wearing fine clothes, and say, You sit here in a good place. And you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down by my footstool. Have you not made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil motives? So James is going to give us a hypothetical situation here, a church gathering. Think of it as a church gathering, a gathering of believers, and two men come into visit. One is very rich. And it shows in how he dresses. The other is poor, and it also shows in how he dresses. And the important part of the illustration here is how these two different men get treated in two very different ways. Start with the rich man. Verse 3 says you pay special attention to the one who is wearing the fine clothes, and you say, You sit here in a good place. The rich man, they're going to make sure that he gets a good seat in the house because it, again, it's what we were saying. When you're wealthy, and that oftentimes comes with power and the nice clothes and the nice things, people tend to show you favoritism. Now, is there anything wrong with being rich in and of itself? Absolutely not. The Bible condemns a love of money. The Bible condemns greed, but it doesn't condemn wealth in and of itself. And do you think there's anything wrong with being uh, nice to wealthy people? No, we should, right? Wealthy people come in, they should be loved and, uh, and treated well. We are to love everybody. So 
The problem is at the beginning of verse 3. The problem is when the individual who comes in wealthy is given special privilege in the church based on their wealth. Because when the poor man walks in, he gets a much different treatment. James says, you say to the poor man, you stay over there, stand over there, and sit down by my footstool. Now, we might have trouble relating to that. There's more than enough chairs in this room, right? Um, but early churches usually met either in synagogues, like they're initially still meeting in the synagogue, or after that, they would start meeting in people's houses. Uh, they didn't have church buildings, right? So there was pretty often not going to be enough seats for everybody. A lot of folks were going to have to stand around. A lot of people were going to have to sit on the floor. And But in the example James gives us, the rich guest, the guest of prominence, he gets a great seat. But the poor man, they're like, hey, how about you go, especially if you're dirty and you smell, like we don't want you, we, we don't want you being associated with us too much. How about you go stand over there out of the way? Or you can sit by my footstool. Now think about that. There's somebody, not only do they have a chair, they're lucky enough to have a footstool. To be able to sit back and recline and be comfortable, just relaxing. Now, if you're not going to give up a seat for somebody, you think you could at least give up a footstool, right? Like, at least give up what you're reclining on. You wouldn't make the rich man sit on the floor. Why are you going to do it to the poor man? In verse 4, James says, Have you not made distinction among yourselves and become judges with evil when you, when you show favor to the rich over the poor, or you plug in any other superficial way, materialistic way of valuing people, when you show favor to the athletic over the unathletic, when you show favor to the kid in the youth group whose parents buy him nice clothes over the kid in the youth group whose parents can't afford to buy him nice clothes, or the kid in the youth group who's great at school, smart, sharp, very talented, versus the kid in the youth group who just, they struggle. They can barely read, they can barely get through school. Anytime we're showing favoritism based on these superficial things that God himself does not value, we are falling into sinful, worldly thinking. We're no longer acting as the church and we're no longer acting as followers of Jesus Christ. We are acting like the world. We are being lovers of the world. Think about what James John says. John says, do not love the world or the things of the world. Because what does the world value according to John? The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the boastful pride of life, fine clothing, prestige, power, success, these are the things that the world loves. They are not to be what we love and what we value. Now, are those things okay? Yeah, many of those things are perfectly fine and okay. But we keep them in a healthy perspective. 
That's not where our value lies. That's not what defines us as followers of Christ. It's not how we judge one another. If we're striving for Christ-likeness, then we are going to value people based on the merits that God has given us. That brings us to part three here. I'm going to grab my phone because I don't know who what time it is. I thought there was a clock over there, and it's not. The ungodliness of favoritism. The ungodliness of favoritism. Verses 5 to 9. Listen, my beloved brethren. Did not God choose the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor men. Is it not the rich who oppress you and personally drag you into court? Do they not blaspheme the fair name by which you have been called? If, however, you are fulfilling the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and convicted by the law as a transgressor. The whole, whole point James is making here is when you judge people based on superficial things, you are acting completely contrary to how God acts. And you are acting, because you are completely contrary to how God acts, in a very ungodly way. It's the ungodliness of favoritism. Now let me tell you a few things James is not saying here. Let me give you two important things that James is not teaching us in this passage. First, he is not teaching us that there's some kind of merit to being poor. And interestingly, you know there are people who take that approach. Like they take a vow of poverty as if that earns some kind of merit with God. Or they think, well, God's going to favor me just because of my poverty. Look, the only way you ever merit God's favor is through Jesus Christ. It's through the righteousness of Christ, his perfect life credited to us by faith, through faith in him. So there's no merit in and of itself to any kind of vow of poverty, right? You can go sell everything you have and give away everything. And if you do that apart from Christ, you're just going to go to hell for There's no merit in poverty. In fact, Colossians 2.23, Paul dresses this exact idea of asceticism, this idea that through like um, foregoing the pleasures of this life, you can earn God's favor. Paul says, look, that has an appearance of godliness, but it's just an appearance. It's actually of no value against the flesh. We can only be made right with God through Jesus Christ. The second thing that James is not teaching us here is that it is a sin to be wealthy. Look through the Bible and look at how many people God made wealthy. Job, Job was wealthy in a godly man. Think about King David, King Solomon, two other individuals from the Old Testament who were wealthy individuals that God made wealthy, and they were men after God's heart. Think about the New Testament church. Very often, wealthy people played a prominent role in providing for Paul and the disciples, the apostles, the churches. Very often, the churches met and 
the homes of wealthy people. So nowhere does the Bible ever condemn wealth in and of itself. It condemns the love of wealth. It condemns uh, faith in wealth. Instead, James is really just pointing out the reality here that while the world strives for wealth above all else, it's number one in the world's list of priorities. Very often, God does the exact opposite. Very often. Verse 5, listen, my beloved brethren, did not God choose the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he promised to those who love him? And frankly, even those who are rich in this world, when they come to Christ, they recognize their poverty before God and the fact that they are spiritually bankrupt and that no amount of earthly, worldly possessions is going to ultimately do them any good. They recognize their poverty before Christ, even being rich in this world, and look for a Savior in Jesus Christ. But God very regularly chooses those who are lowly seen by the world's standards for His purposes. In fact, you think of Him choosing the nation of Israel, if you go read Deuteronomy 7, 7 to 8, God says, you know, I actually chose Israel because they were small, they were weak, and they were slaves in Egypt. They were at the bottom of the world standing. And that is why I chose them. So that it could be through them that I would make the greatness of my name and my power known. It's really why God chose David, right? God said, you know, let me take, look at the sons of Jesse. I'm going to take the least of the sons of Jesse, the youngest. And that who is who I'm going to make king of the nation of Israel. Paul carries this principle into the New Testament, 1 Corinthians 1, 26-27. Paul says this, Consider your calling, brethren, that there were not many wise according to the flesh, that is, according to worldly standards, not many wise, not many mighty, not many noble. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong. You see, God uses those who are weak in this world for his great purposes, so that it is very clear where the glory goes to. When great things are accomplished through the church and through God's people, God makes it extraordinarily clear that the greatness and glory belongs to him alone, not to the people through which he is working. Second Corinthians 4, 7, Paul says that the glow of the knowledge of God in Christ the gospel, the gloriousness of who Jesus Christ is, is in us clay, fragile, unimpressive pots. So that again, it is evident that the surpassing greatness of the power is from God and not ourselves. Do you see that principle all throughout Scripture? God does great things, not by worldly means, but through weak things in this world so that the greatness of his power goes to him. I always think like our building. Like we need, our, we need a lot of money to build a building, right? 
It's like, geez, look at all these like billionaires. Like, they can just get a loan. Like, it would be nothing. Like, you could pay for it tomorrow, right? Like, but that's just not how God normally works. Sometimes, but not normally. Not normally. God values the poor of this world. And those are the ones that it falls in most often uses. So when we shun the poor, but when we look at people who are weak by world standards and joining the world and mocking them and devaluing them, we could not be acting more contrary to God, more contrary to Christ, more ungodly. Verse 6, James tells them, you have dishonored the poor man. And James continues to highlight just how worldly and ungodly it is. Um, he says, Is it not the rich who oppress you and personally drag you into court? Do they not blaspheme the fair name by which you have been called? Again, James is not giving us a concrete law here. Like the wealthy are always sinful and the wealthy are always wrong. Um, there's, like we talked about, plenty of wealthy men and women in the Bible, throughout history, who have faithfully served God, but. As a general principle, those who are wealthy in this world very often do not value the things of God. And as a general principle, pretty often those who are wealthy in this world, what are they trying to figure out ways to do? No matter how much money they have, how much more do they want? As much as possible, right? Like, like I always think like Elon Musk, like, nobody could ever make me a like, $200 billionaire or whatever he is, because I'd just be dumb. Like, I don't think I'm doing anything tomorrow or for the next, like, 30 years. But him, he's, like, going to wake up and work 16 hours tomorrow to make more money and find ways to make more money. That's just the drive of, of, of those who are in this world, and it's typically those who are rich and wealthy looking to exploit the poor for the purposes of getting richer. Jesus often reminds us that it is difficult for those who are rich, wealthy in this world, to enter into the kingdom of God. Matthew 19, 23 to 26, Jesus says, it is hard for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of heaven. Easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. In other words, it's humanly impossible because it takes an act of God. Now, thankfully, God does the the impossible, right? Because the disciples ask, well, then who can be saved? Who can be saved? And Jesus says, with people, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. James is showing us that God places no value on the material, monetary, worldly things that this world values. But it gives us a putting, putting off and putting on principle here, right? The Bible always says that. It always says, don't do this. Instead, do this. Put off this sin and put off, put, put off this sin, put on this righteousness. And he gives us the alternative in verse 8. He says, if, however, you are fulfilling the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. That's the standard we should treat each other by. Love. The standard of love. Love your neighbor as yourself. The message isn't to 
shun the rich man and favor the poor. No, love them both. Love them both the same. Love them both sacrificially. Give the rich man a chair, your chair and the poor man your chair. James calls this the royal love, law because it's so prominent throughout the Bible. Leviticus 19.18, love your neighbor as yourself. We could go find the command to love one another, love your neighbor as yourself, all throughout the Bible. Jesus highlights it in Matthew 23, where he's asked, what are the two most important commandments? Love God and love your neighbor. You get those two things right, everything else starts falling into place. On those two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. But, James reminds us in verse 9, if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as a transgressor. If we show partiality, we are committing sin. Now, how serious is this sin? How bad is this sin? Because we're often very good at kind of ranking things in our mind, right? Like, you know, sure, I don't hang out with everybody at youth group, and there's kids I don't really like in youth group, and I ignore them, but it's not a big deal, really. I'm still there. I still, I don't cuss. I don't, like, cheat in school. Like, everybody tells me I'm a pretty good kid. I'm probably doing all right. You know, sure, I don't get it all right. I don't like that person, and I don't love that person. But it's probably, we have, you see these rationalized things, and we try to rank things in our mind, like, it's okay if I do this, but I, this one's probably not too big of a deal. James shows us the seriousness of the sin. The seriousness of the sin of favoritism. Our final section here, verses 10 to 13. If we think we can be okay, keeping most of the law and not caring about this, here's what James says. Whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles in one point, he has become guilty of all. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not commit murder. Now, if you do not commit adultery, but do commit murder, you become a transgressor of the law. So speak and act as those who are to be judged by the law of liberty. For judgment will be merciless to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. We don't get the option of saying these aspects of God's commandments are important to me, but I'm not too worried about these other aspects. We can tend to do that, and we want to do that, and we often judge other people by that, right? Like we look at the sin in other people's lives and just see how bad it is and glaring it is, but we fail to see our own. And what God is telling us, what James tells us here, is that disobedience is disobedience. Okay? The same God who said that you shouldn't do these really horrible things that you think are just so terribly bad, this is the same God who's telling you you should love one another and serve one another in the church without favoritism. In a sense, all sins are equal. Have you heard people say that before? Like, all sins are equal? There's a sense in which that's true. A sense in which that's not true, right? Like, 
different sins certainly have different worldly consequences. Like, if you make me angry, and I simply respond in anger, like I have anger in my heart and resentment towards you, but then I move on and like that's the end of it. That's one thing. If you make me angry and I murder you, there's very different worldly consequences for that, right? Like that's terrible for you, your family, I'm probably going to jail, terrible for my family. So in one sense, different sins do carry with it different worldly consequences. But when we talk about our standing before God, what Scripture tells us is that all sin is an incredible offense against a holy and righteous God deserving of death. And in the sense of our standing before God, all sin makes us a lawbreaker and in desperate need of a Savior. Stumbling in just one point condemns us before God. James says you can't try to rank the seriousness of sin in your own mind and justify yourself by keeping what you think is most important. And he says here, how should we treat each other? He says we should treat each other, in verse 12, speak and act as those who are to be judged by the law of liberty. That's the gospel. The law of liberty is the gospel, meaning not that we're free to go do whatever we want, and like just who cares about what God says in his law, but the law of liberty is that the gospel has set us free from the condemnation of the law, because we could never be justified through keeping the law in us. So the, the law of liberty is the gospel has set us free to now walk in the spirit live by the Spirit that live in obedience to God. And James is taking us back here to the principle that if you're a follower of Christ, speak and act that way. Speak to one another as a follower of Christ. The way you talk to one another should bear the fruit of a life indwelt by the Holy Spirit if you're a follower of Christ. And the way you, he says, speak and act, the way you act towards one another should bear the fruit of the Holy Spirit in your life. Instead of ever, ever looking to do things to tear one another down or to harm one another, it's the opposite. Like, you should be looking for ways to build one another up. Look, the world is hard. Life is hard. We live in a sinful, fallen world. We all have sin in our own lives. The consequences of sin are all around us. And it makes life very difficult, right? Be it school, athletics, whatever extracurriculars you're into, work, you are going to run into trouble in this world. The youth group in the church, North Lake Bible Church, should be a place where we get to come together, build one another up, encourage one another, and as James would say, speak and act as those who are to be judged by the law of liberty. Speak and act towards one another as those who are under the gospel of Jesus Christ.
Conversely, verse 13, judgment will be merciless to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. When we lack mercy and compassion for one another, when we, when we judge one another harshly based on superficial worldly standards, we are acting as unbelievers. It, it, it certainly does not bear the fruit of the Holy Spirit in your life. We are acting as those who are outside of the faith and outside of the mercy of God. How do we really apply this? The value of God values in other people. That doesn't mean, again, that you're not going to have friends that you're closer to. That naturally happens. We see it all throughout the Bible with Jesus, even the apostles. That does just happen. But it does mean that we are going to go out of our way to, when somebody does something wrong to us, when somebody is just different and like we don't understand, like how could they be into that? Like how could they be interested in that? That seems so bizarre. If it's a superficial world thing, who cares? Value the things in one another that God values. Love your neighbor as yourself. You go out of your way to look for ways to serve one another and show each other love. Like you see somebody who's just sitting alone, nobody ever talks to them. Nobody interacts with them. Go out of your way to make that connection. And make them feel like somebody who is loved and valued here in youth group. And it's big because it's not about the youth group, right? It's bigger than that. It's about the body of Christ. Like you recognize that that's what North Lake Bible Church and even this youth group is an extension of the body of Christ. That makes it a big deal, right? Because all of a sudden, it's much bigger than like, hey, this is just our social thing, or this is just a cultural thing. Or yeah, it's a really fun place to go on Wednesday night, and like we get to do other fun activities. When you start looking at the youth group, North Lake Bible Church, as an extension of the body of Christ, and as something that you play a role in as a follower of Christ, that's a big deal. That is a big deal that has eternal implications. We've got within that context, look to love one another as yourself. Because essentially, you're a part of the body of Christ, they are a part of the body of Christ. There's a sense in which it is the same. You you are connected for eternity. Serve each other in that way. And real quickly, so Mr. Bonish can come talk with us. Recognize our equality in Christ, okay? Like, okay, you're really good at school. You're really good at music. You're really good at sports. Okay, cool. That's awesome. You recognize those around you who aren't as completely equal in Jesus Christ and is of 100% the same value 
is you when it comes to what ultimately really matters. Recognize our quality in Jesus Christ, whether it's rich, poor, very cool, very uncool by worldly standards, very talented, very untalented. We are all members of the body of Christ. Love each other and serve each other in this way. Let's pray. Lord, we do thank you for the gift that the church is and just the your grace and mercy and letting us be a part of it. And uh, I just pray you make us faithful in serving the body of Christ, loving one another, just seeing your glory within one another, and uh, really making the health of the church, the spiritual health of one another, more important than ourselves as individuals, Lord. And uh, pray that this morning you help us to focus on implementing that, on edifying and building up each other, and on glorifying and worshiping you. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.